0: You're listening to Countermoves, a Christian review of ideas shaping church and culture. On Countermoves, we interview some of today's most incisive thinkers on the ideas and trends affecting Christian witness in a secular age. Our mission is summed up in the words of Carl F.H. Henry. If the church fails to apply the central truth of Christianity to social problems correctly, someone else will do so incorrectly. Welcome to the latest episode of Countermoves, and on this episode, we want to explore some broad categories of interest, and those categories are religion and politics and a concept that some of you may not be familiar with, but you're currently living in, and this is this concept called liberal democracy. More or less, America is considered to be a liberal democracy, this notion of of rights and procedural systems that guarantee our rights, and we want to talk about the role that religion has played in a country like ours that is classically known as a, a as a liberal democracy. And we're going to do that with Dr. Matthew Frank, who is the associate director of the James Madison Program at Princeton University. Uh, he is also professor emeritus of political science at Radford University, um, where he taught constitutional law, American politics, and political philosophy, and he's also a visiting lecturer in politics at Princeton University. So we're dealing with an individual who is extremely well-equipped to guide us in this conversation on religion and politics and liberal democracy, and particularly of interest is my friend Matt here is uh, a devout Catholic, so he's not an evangelical. So he approaches this uh, from a lot of the same common ground, but as a Catholic, he has some unique emphases uh, that we'll explore through this program. And of course, like always, uh, I'm joined by my co-host, Mike Carter. Mike, how you doing? Doing pretty good. good. Excited to be here. Good. Glad to have you here with me. And so, uh, first off, Dr. Frank, or Matt, as you told me to call you, I want to welcome you to Countermoves, and uh, thanks for being with us today.
1: It's great to be with you and Mike, Andrew.
0: Well, so I want to just go ahead and kick this off big picture, is, you know, Matt, would you explain to our listeners what this concept of liberal democracy is? And would you talk about how religion is supposed to ideally function in a liberal democracy?
1: Well, that's, those, are, those are really big questions, really great questions, Andrew. Thank you. Um, yeah, the, uh, the idea of liberal democracy, you might say, is, is the idea of America's founders. Um, in, in the final quarter of the 18th century when the uh, american founders made their revolution and broke away from great britain f- uh, founded this country and and gave it the constitution they were attempting to do something uh, uh, an experiment if you will that uh, uh, that had never been tried or at least not tried with any with any uh, realistic success before and that was uh, to put people in charge of their own government that's the democracy part, but to achieve limited government Mm
2: -hmm. rather
1: than tyrannical democracy. That's the liberal part. So liberal democracy, and one of the great texts for understanding it is uh, the Federalist Papers by Hamilton, Madison, and and John Jay. Um, Liberal democracy is that, uh, that experiment in ordered liberty under the rule of law where majorities rule. Uh, Ultimately, they do so on every great question. Immediately, they do so through elected representatives. So uh, so in truth, you know, uh, democracy was not the favored word of uh, the founding fathers. Mm -hmm. They would have called ours uh, not a liberal democracy, but a free republic. And so a republic or a form of republicanism devoted to freedom was the new achievement that they sought to accomplish in our constitutional order. Now, as for as for religion's place in all of that, um, I'd say it has a it has a, a very important, if not a if not a central place. I, I would say it does have a central place in it. Um, this was a Christian country in 1776 mm-hmm. or 87, uh, by which I mean uh, that, uh, that that the majority of Americans were Christians of one denomination or another. Uh, it was it was mostly Protestants small numbers of Catholics, even smaller numbers of Jews. There was a strain among some intellectual elites like Ben Franklin and Thomas Jefferson of something approaching, but not exactly deism. Our friend Tommy Kidd, professor of history at Baylor, can go into the intricacies of all this, especially in the thought of Ben Franklin, about whom he's recently published a book. But one thing that they were all in accord about all the founders were in accord about was that the liberal part of the liberal democracy would include among its precepts of freedom uh, a, a very strong idea of religious freedom. Uh, when James Madison was running for Congress in the first House House of Representatives, which met in 1789, a, a major part of his local constituency in Virginia were Baptists. Right, your your people, and that's right, <laughs> and, uh, my people. And, your people and uh, uh, now Madison. Madison had been, had been raised in the Church of England, the Anglican Church, the, which was the uh, up until the Revolution the established church of Virginia. Uh, but he had be- grown uh, distressed and and alarmed at the treatment of Baptists by the Anglican establishment and the political authorities of Virginia, uh, and so he he readily you know got on board. With what um, you know, people like Isaac Backus and others were saying about uh, the necessity of establishing religious freedom and disestablishing uh, the the unity of church and state. Uh, so, so for this reason, you know, Madison comes to that first Congress loaded for bear with proposed amendments, which included, of course, uh, the First Amendment with its protection of of religious exercise and its no establishment principle, mm-hmm. but you know I think we make a big mistake some people Some people make a big mistake when they view the uh, the devotion of our founders to religious freedom as a kind of uh, secular sneak attack on religion as such uh-huh. the idea The idea being that you know as soon as you accommodate a diversity of religions. And disestablish religion, separating it from from the state, you actually uh, weaken people's religious devotion, people's religious faith, and that that's the end game is to is to basically secularize the country. I think that's I think that's a project of a later form of liberalism, twentieth century liberalism or progressivism, but it's not the agenda of the founders.
0: So I want to go ahead and, and jump into this dilemma that you just uh, referenced about religion and liberal democracy. And specifically cite an individual that some of our listeners may not be familiar with, but an individual named John Rawls, who came along in the 1960s, 70s, 80s, I guess even the 90s for that matter, and proposing this idea of what's called public reason, which is his attempt to basically establish a common public discourse for how America could um, achieve consensus around either morality or policy, but without appealing to what he called comprehensive claims, which I take him to mean more or less religious claims. And so, Matt, I'd love to hear your thoughts about how do we navigate this idea of public reason, because public reason from Rawls is without a doubt maybe the most influential force that has shaped religion and politics in the last thirty and forty years, and you know, just to show my cards here, you know, you wrote an article several years ago called "The Unreasonableness of Secular Public Reason." I believe that I actually cited quite a bit in my dissertation, so I know you are well equipped to poke a hole in the Rawlsian dilemma. Um, but <laughs> yeah. would we, just love to hear y- your thoughts on. Is he right? I mean, how do we make those comprehensive claims in a diverse society?
1: Yeah, Rawls had had written a book uh, published in 1971 called A Theory of Justice, which is arguably the most uh, famous book on that subject, on justice, Mm -hmm. written by any English-speaking philosopher of the last half of the 20th century. Hugely influential in the fields of philosophy, political theory, and law— But but he was there was an element of that um, that book that he was unsatisfied with unhappy with, and it was uh, the the problem of uh, conflict in a diverse society. How to solve the problem of of conflicting visions of the good and of justice
0: mm-hmm.
1: in, a, in a pluralistic and diverse society. So he came back almost a quarter century later in 1993 with a book called Political Liberalism, in which he substantially revised one part of the argument in the earlier book and, 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 and came up with this idea of public reason mm-hmm. you're talking about. And what, what public reason says is that people coming into the public square to make arguments about justice should... Uh, Leave behind, out of the public square, anything that might be called their comprehensive vision of the good and bring to the public square only those arguments that conform to the dictates of what Rawls called public reason. For him, public reason involved any argument you could make that didn't presuppose your commitment to your comprehensive vision, And that you could reasonably expect others who don't share your comprehensive vision to endorse.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. The trouble with this this argument was that it it amounted to what I call a secular heckler's veto.
0: That's exactly well said, well said.
1: Um, The the demand that only uh, a narrow understanding of public reason uh, be, be welcome in the public square Effectively tells uh, people of deep religious faith that their faith is not to be spoken of, it's not to be referenced, it's not to, not to be relied upon in the arguments they frame for persuading their fellow citizens of anything important. And uh, and his, you know, you, you were right to suggest a moment ago, Andrew, that that for Rawls, uh, this these comprehensive visions that must be kept outside the boundaries of the public square, back in the private sphere of our homes and our churches. Uh, those comprehensive visions are almost entirely religious. They could be non-religious, but but practically every example that Rawls has of a comprehensive vision is is religious. I think it's bad philosophy, and it's worse um, it's worse for politics. Mm. It, it, it creates more problems than it solves. The secular Heckler's veto, as I call it, of telling people to to shut the heck up about their <laughs> about their religion, is um, it's it's prone to produce more conflict than it than it ameliorates, right? I mean, it 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 um, it gives people reasons to denounce, to dismiss, to hold in contempt, or uh, or to despise their fellow citizens, rather than giving people reasons to come together on some shared understanding of the good. I think there's there's a really there's a really great book uh, that was talked about a lot 30 years ago even 20 years ago but is should is due for a um, renewed interest and uh, and serious students of religion and politics need to check it out and that's the late father Richard John Newhouse's book the naked public square right, right. it was published published nine years before Rawls's political liberalism and it anticipates almost it all those arguments and refutes them and it's a it's a brilliant book Newhouse was an interesting fellow he had actually begun life as a Lutheran. Mm-hmm. And at the time he published The Naked Public Square, he was a practicing Lutheran pastor. He founded the magazine First Things while still a Lutheran pastor, but then shortly thereafter became a Catholic and subsequently was ordained a Catholic priest. So we call him Father Newhouse now. He was Pastor Newhouse when he published The Naked Public Square. It's just a, a genius of a book. Uh, and, and Newhouse, Newhouse too, has a, a, an idea of public reason at work in his book. But it's a much more generous, spirited public mm-hmm. reason that welcomes people to the public square uh, to state arguments based on their religion, as long as they understand that some kinds of arguments are going to be more persuasive right. to people who don't share their religion. Um, and that, uh, you know, this is. It's all about bridge building rather than rather than exclusion, which is what the Rawlsian thesis turns out to be.
0: So, so let me pick up on something you just said about um, how it creates more problems than it solves. One of my frustrations with public reason, uh, on the one hand, I I appreciate the notion that we should have a, some type of aspirational public discourse. The problem, as I see it, is public reason fundamentally misunderstands or caricatures how religious arguments are actually made. And so it, it treats all religious arguments as fideistic and blunt force rather than in any way related to reason. Um, and I know you've you've written about this that when religious people make arguments, we're not necessarily operating first and foremost from the domain of religion. But are it, it's a reasonable argument that is springing from a foundation of religion, perhaps. Right. Could you yeah. talk a little bit about that? I mean, you've written some incisive comments on this.
1: Yeah, I, I thank you, Andrew. I uh, appreciate that. I, I, um, I, th- I think that—I mean, the way, the way I put it in the article, which you referred, is that often we bring to the public square— uh, something from our religion, our, our revealed religion, or our, th- our theology—something that's only a major premise for a policy conclusion—and right. then we have to supply minor premises from other considerations that are that are purely rational or practical or prudential. Um, so, in one example I use is uh, "Thou shalt not kill" is is in uh, in the Ten Commandments, but by itself, it doesn't lead us straight to anything in public policy, um, you can't even get a coherent homicide law, let alone laws about assisted suicide, mm. euthanasia, and abortion out of thou shalt not kill. Uh, what you have to then do is introduce the minor premises, the intervening premises that take you to conclusions. Now, actually, it's not going to be terribly hard to get most Americans to agree to the proposition that's that, that that's in uh, in the ten Commandments thou shalt not kill or mm-hmm. thou shalt not murder as 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 we might more precisely state it uh, everything from from there is you know what what do we mean about how that plays out how do we how should we think about unborn life v- frail and vulnerable life at the at the end of our days um, the handicapped uh, the people in a in what we call a persistent vegetative state, uh, and there, all these are all these are applied problems uh, of trying to figure out what uh, respect for life, respect for human dignity, calls us to do. But it's it's it, it's crazy to just say, well, you know, you're you're against abortion because you're Catholic or you're Evangelical mm-hmm. or you're an Orthodox Jew. No. Uh, the, People from those traditions who are against abortion can usually, if they've thought about it at all, they can usually uh, articulate perfectly rational arguments that only from the very first premise have any religious content to them at all.
2: That's right. One of the things you've been talking about is something that's near and dear to both Andrew and I's heart, which is the value that uh, the religious community brings to culture and how even though we participate in the public square, our belief systems and the presuppositions from which uh, those are based upon really bring value to a community. And so in light of that, we'd love to hear from you just some of the the value that uh, religious beliefs bring to the greater culture, you know, operating from these presuppositions, giving us an idea of how to inform ourselves in, per your example, like how do you deal with life or uh, murder? So to phrase it this way, um, can society hope to be stable or perpetuate itself without religion at the center or as a major part of culture?
1: I I I don't think so. Now uh, this is um, in the precincts I occupy. I'm at Princeton University now. It's not a that's not a popular answer, right? But <laughs>
2: mm-hmm. um, because
1: and I and I do want to hasten to add that. That, that some of the nuns among us, the n o n e s, yeah. uh, who are who are unchurched, who are agnostic or even determined atheists uh, or secularists, uh, I'm not saying that they're incapable of being good citizens. Um, but i I do think that 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 those people, and I, I should say I used to be one of them for many years. I was unchurched before I returned to the Catholic faith. Um, they're they 're living on they 're living on moral capital they 're spending they 're spending moral capital that was built up over centuries by by christianity right in our society in other societies it may be some other religion but 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 secular liberalism is rapidly spending down and often blowing through with amazing speed and wastefulness the moral capital built up over centuries by christianity so uh, so I so I think I, I, I am willing to say that while the individual atheist, agnostic, secularist, unchurched person or none is uh, is perfectly capable as an individual of being an honest person, a trustworthy person, a person w- with moral integrity, as a society we're 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 heading for trouble the more the trend continues, that the numbers of such people increase, and the numbers of faithful, Christians, Jews, even Muslims, decreases. Father Newhouse, I keep referring to him, but he's, he wrote another wonderful book uh, hitting some of these same themes at the end of his life titled American Babylon. It was published shortly after his death in 2009. And, um, and he directly addresses the question, like in a chapter title there, uh, can an atheist be a good citizen? And he, he, he comes very close to saying, it, you know, I don't think so. What he means to say is, it's harder. Mm-hmm. It, it's harder, and, and part of the reason is that that our religion gives us uh, what we Catholics call the Imago Dei. It gives
0: us right.
1: a vision of the human good as as understood by reference to the divine. That we are made in the image of, and likeness of God, and that's the source of our rights, of our dignity, and so on. Uh, George Washington said he, you know, in his farewell address that he didn't he didn't think um, that. That, that a society could do without religion. That's right. Maybe some rare individuals can, he said, but not a whole
0: society. Not a society. And and I think it's worth pointing out that, you know, a statement like you are making does not imply a confessional state. It's what we're hoping for is a confessional culture um, where the people from the ground up are informed by the religion and then act on the basis of that religion um, in their everyday lives. I, I, I want to follow up to kind of the the hard left turn that secularism has has taken do you think that were john rawls still alive today that he would say that where we currently are is a natural outworking of his ideas a uh, public reason or has secular progressivism taken it and abused the concept for inappropriate ends yeah
1: and that, it's impossible for me to say what what Rawls would sure, sure. would say, but I think that the I think that the liberalism we see around us today, the secular liberalism, is much more the product of Rawlsian thought, um, which has seeped into uh, a public discourse where a public square where where many people are unaware of Rawls, haven't read Rawls. Um, but it's seeped into to that public discourse to an extent over the last 45 years uh, that is really surprising. I, I, I have a fugitive piece somewhere on my computer that I haven't ever published anywhere in which I talk not only about Rawls versus Newhouse, but how Barack Obama was, in many respects, our first Thoroughly Rawlsian president.
2: Mm. I would encourage you, you to go publish ba- that. Yeah,
1: yeah. If if you go back, if you go back and look at Obama's 2009 commencement address at Notre Dame, a Catholic university, it's it's suffused with Rawlsian secular public reason. Hmm. At the same time, he cleverly, you know, nods in the direction of uh, the importance of religion in people's lives. Since, after all, he's speaking at Notre Dame but um I, I have no idea whether 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 obama had closely studied rawls or whether he had just sort of had it seep into his pores at harvard law school when mm-hmm. he was a student there um I, I really have no idea but um i i think that uh again contra rawls contra obama uh, the the wisdom was the the wise one was newhouse mm-hmm. um who said that um Uh, it's only religion that supplies a transcendent authority that stands outside the state.
0: That's right. And holds the state accountable to something.
1: Yes, exactly.
0: So I want to kind of approach, uh, I know it's a debate happening in Catholic intellectual circles to a great extent and to a lesser extent in Protestant circles, but it's this issue on the on, on whether, frankly, liberal democracy is worth preserving. And so I'm obviously talking about the Patrick Deneen debates. You know, I one of my good friends is Sarabamari, who's also a Catholic and, and he originally, uh, when I interviewed him, um, you know he, he started out where he was you know very much in defense of liberal democracy. And by the time I interviewed him probably over a year ago, he has begun to not sour on liberal democracy. But sees its kind of its heyday having come to an end. Hmm. Uh, I would be interested. You know, where do you where do you land on that spectrum? I mean, is 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 it something that you know was that was its own destruction in its DNA, or is yeah. it, it is it is it worth preserving because it's based on some classical Christian anthropology and we just need to rehabilitate it?
1: I think I disagree with Pat Deneen. Uh He and I know each other. We were. Uh, Uh, visiting fellows here at Princeton together a decade ago. I know Saurabh Amari as well. Mm -hmm. I I incline toward the latter view you expressed, Andrew, that that actually uh, liberalism is is pretty squarely grounded in an anthropology that has Christian roots. Now, a lot of this comes down to an argument over John Locke and what he meant and what Locke's influence on the founders was. I've done I've done a little study of the Christian discourse that entered into colonial and revolutionary American debates uh, over over politics, and and it, to me it's um, it's remarkable the extent to which uh, figures in the, the American founding. Can move so easily back and forth across a boundary from what sounds like purely liberal political discourse to Christian arguments and back again. Uh, I refer to this in a piece I wrote a few years ago as the warp and woof of the American founding, that there's there's a sort of a, a Christian warp and a liberal woof. And <laughs> and they, you know, what results is a weave, a fabric. In which they're in which they're mutually supporting, I think that it's it's the it's the progressives of the period uh, starting at the turn of the twentieth century with with Woodrow Wilson, it's the Rawlsian secular public reason of the late twentieth century, that has turned American liberalism decisively in this secular direction hmm. where it's hostile to faith, hostile to community. Uh, and and more inclined to sort of fragment us and isolate us as individuals rather than than bring us together. Now, these these tendencies are, of course, uh, possible and present. These these atomistic and centrifugal tendencies are are present in liberalism from the get-go because it's a a doctrine of freedom, limited government and individual freedom. But that's always for the founders always tempered by more uh, community-oriented and and Republican ideas uh, of what it means to be a community together. And I think um, one of the best books that can help people see that liberalism actually has uh, Christian origins in the distant past is a book called Inventing the Individual by an Oxford scholar named Larry Sedentop. Um, his book is titled The Christian Origins of Western Liberalism. And it's a really, it's, it's a deep, deep challenge to the view that liberalism is simply anti-Christian
0: mm-hmm.
1: uh, or, or radically individualistic. Uh, it, it's, it's Christianity that, that taught human beings that the rich as well as the poor, the slave as well as the free, the woman as well as the man... All are made in the image of God, all are equal in human dignity, all are possessed of rights by their nature as such creatures of God, such 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 people made in his image. Mm-hmm. Another scholar who's written wonderfully on this um, is John Witte at, at Emory University, mm-hmm. an evangelical Christian himself. He heads up a program on law and Christianity at, at Emory Law School. There, there are others besides, but I, I, I think that... I think that there's a, there's a a sort of a discouragement about the turn liberalism has taken mm-hmm. since the Obama years in, in our own country uh, that has led some of our devout Catholic and other Christian friends to give up on liberalism as a failed project. I just don't agree with
0: that. And it could be potentially – I mean it could be a short-sighted critique of liberal democracy is it could be in a uh, – it's in its winter phase right now. It's hibernating, and it could return depending on (laughs) the circumstances. But I know uh, Mike has
2: a question for you. I I find these ideas just to be fascinating to see how liberalism as a concept is really valuable for us in our ordinary lives. But one of the things that is a key idea behind liberalism and behind a society that just kind of functions with a plurality of ideas is the idea of natural law. And I know that Many of us are not aware of some of the arguments for natural law within our political worldview and our Christian worldview. And so, would you help us just unpack that just for a minute? Like, how does natural law fit into Christian political thought, and what function does that play in our lives, but also within the the founders' lives? Well, the
1: idea of natural law, if I can simplify it drastically, but in a way that I think makes it immediately accessible to people. The idea of natural law is simply the idea that there are norms of justice accessible to human beings on the basis of reason alone, without special revelation or scriptural instruction, but norms of reason that, that give us cause to judge whether this or that law humans make is just or unjust. Uh, one of the great places to see this conveyed with a, with a simplicity that is compelling is Martin Luther King Jr.'s letter from Birmingham jail. King was a student of theology. He had, of course, done his doctorate at Boston University. Uh, he had read widely in 20th century uh, theology. But, but he speaks in the accents of great church fathers of centuries past, including including Thomas Aquinas, uh, when he speaks of an unjust law being no law at all. That's the voice of the natural law speech. That's right. Now, you know, we Catholics sometimes think, well, natural law is, a, is, is, is our thing. You know, it's something we specialize in. We've kept up this tradition, this Thomistic tradition since Thomas Aquinas in the 14th century and so on. And and we sometimes look down on our fellow Christians of the Protestant evangelical variety <laughs> as as fideistic, right? If it ain't in the Bible, That's right. I don't want to hear about it. And there is a there is a little bit of that in some evangelical circles, sure. but I am I am very much heartened to see in the work of people like the late Jean Bethke Elstein, in the work of Daryl Charles today. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the work of uh, people like Daniel Dreisbach and Mark David Hall, who are great students of the American founding, that we're seeing a, a revival of interest in natural law among Protestant and evangelical Christians. And I, I would just so, testify
0: to, to, to that yeah. personally there are there's there's a resurgent interest in natural law uh, happening I sense, especially even among Southern Baptists uh, because yes. we're recognizing that it is, you know, Depending on where you fall on the Reformed scale, everyone is beginning to understand that this notion of public accessibility has to have some theological underpinning for us for it to be intelligible. And so I, I yeah. really do sense that there is a resurgent interest in this, and even anecdotally, I've had several seminary students who have more or less asked me to convene some kind of private colloquia to get together and discuss this, yeah. and I think that's a it's a very... I don't know how recent it is but I mean I'm I'm fairly young and I and I have sensed even in my young career a burgeoning widening interest in this subject as well.
1: Yeah I think it's very encouraging
0: I I know we only have a couple minutes left I wanted to ask you more kind of personal intellectual journey type question is what are one or two books that you can look to that profoundly shaped, your orientation to the world, your worldview, whether that's theology or political philosophy, just one or two books and maybe why why those have had such a lasting impact on your life.
1: Yeah, thank you. By training and by profession, I'm a political scientist and a teacher of political philosophy. And the two books that I have probably returned to more often than any other to teach and to benefit from as a student myself are Plato's Republic and the Federalist Papers. Hmm. i am just, you know, worn out a succession of copies of the Federalist Papers, and I'm hanging on, I'm teaching this semester from a beat-up copy of Plato's Republic I bought <laughs> as a student in the 70s. Um, so uh, so I, I, I love those books. Uh, I was very much influenced by the thought of Leo Strauss mm-hmm. as a student, although I think I've... I've come a long way, you know, long distance from the Straussian perspective on the world. I think he tends to drive the wedge a little too hard between reason and revelation, which, by the way, is a is a criticism I would uh, point at my friend Pat Denine as well. Mm. I, I, I think he I think he does that a little bit too much. There's a bit too much Leo Strauss in in Pat Deneen's work, but uh, you know, you're talking to someone who who you might say reads books for a living. Sure. So I tend to turn towards books I've read recently, like mm-hmm. uh, like Larry Siedentop's book,
0: mm-hmm. uh,
1: like uh, Kyle Harper's wonderful book, From Shame to Sin. Which is
0: a wonderful book. I agree. Oh my
1: gosh, that's so good. And let me flag one that will be coming out this spring, next month, in fact, from the great Robert Louis Wilkin of uh, Emeritus... Uh, professor of Christianity at University of Virginia. It's called uh, Liberty in the Things of God, the Christian Origins of Religious Freedom. Oh it's goodness. an absolute must read. Okay. And uh, I, hope, uh, I hope people will, will snap that up and, uh, and pour over its pages.
0: Can you share the title of that one more time?
1: Yes. Liberty in the Things of God by Robert Lewis Wilkin, W-I-L-K-E-N. Uh, Professor Wilkin is the chairman of the board of the uh, of the Institute for Religion and Public Life that publishes First Things magazine, and uh, uh, has published uh, for decades on. Christian history, especially in the period, the patristic period Mm -hmm. uh, in in particular. But this is a book that ranges from that period to the American founding. It's really well done.
0: That's great. Well, to the listeners, you have gotten uh, a list of books in the process of this conversation that you need to go add to your Amazon wish list. I can attest to several of them. They are terrific. I'm going to add a couple myself, including the new Robert Wilkin Lewis book as well, Matt, I want to thank you for taking time out of your schedule to join us. I know you have a busy day, but we do appreciate it.
1: My pleasure, Andrew. Nice to meet you, Mike, and uh, to talk with you, Andrew.
0: Great, thank you so much. We want to thank you, the listeners, for joining us on this episode of Counter Moves. And until we meet again, we'll see you next time.